Well, we're proceeding in our study of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. So if you would please turn in your copies of the scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 4 through 17 this morning. The central focus of this morning's message will be verse 10. So please note verse 10 and 11 really connectedly. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brethren. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The title for the message this morning is, Let There Be No Divisions Among You. Now last Sunday, we began a new study with the letters of Paul, the Apostle Paul, to the Corinthian church. And eventually we're going to get to that second letter as well. We looked briefly at the context of the immediate pagan culture in which the Corinthian church appeared. And we observed that this was an unlikely place, humanly speaking, for a community of Christians to be established. Nevertheless, God had told the Apostle Paul that he had many in Corinth who were his people. The call of God had preceded and empowered the conversion of many Corinthians. Paul had been called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, empowered through that converting call to preach the gospel. The gospel message had gone forth into Corinth, and many had come to faith in Jesus Christ through the powerful call of God attending Paul's preaching. And we learned that the call of God did even more. Paul tells us in verse 9, those called out ones, the saints of Corinth, had been called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. Every good and perfect gift had been given to them to bring them to salvation and transfer them into the fellowship of Christ's kingdom. Now, having said all that, Paul has established the grounds for the unity of the church. There was only one gospel. There was only one Lord, Jesus Christ, and there was only one kingdom into which they had now come together as brethren. Now this teaching is the basis for the words of Paul which immediately follow verse 9. In verse 10, Paul says this, I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind 
and the same judgment. I want to begin looking at that by drawing some general observations from our passage, and specifically from verse 10. Notice, first of all, the voice of Paul. We were talking about this at the fire circle just on Friday. Notice how gracious it is, how inclusive, how gentle. He could have presented himself as the apostle of Jesus Christ, which he had just declared that he was by the calling of God. He could have presented himself to them with great authority, with the, with the demand. He could have commanded them. He could have begun with a, re, a rebuke. In some places later in the letter, we'll see more of that tone. But notice that Paul begins by attempting reconciliation and agreement through appeal to those he's calling family, brethren. He even uses the word call again, which is the basis for the word appeal in Greek. It's as if Paul is going out of his way to kindly and convincingly reason the Corinthians into a change of behavior. He calls them brethren, reminding them that they've been saved into one family, called into one fellowship of Jesus Christ. Now, since they've been called by God into this fellowship, as you have, brethren, Paul now calls them to live in such a way that they're indeed in fellowship. Now, today as we work through this passage, I'm going to make application as we go. So let's pause a moment and consider what we've already learned from the Apostle. We've learned by Paul's example. We've learned from Paul that our fellowship in Jesus Christ is to be considered in the context of family. We are family, brethren, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That word translated brothers here is actually the only way that you can say in Greek brethren. It's meant to include everyone in the context. We are family. We're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. The call of God bringing us to salvation in Jesus Christ has brought us into a filial relationship with him. We are his sons and his daughters. And therefore, we've also been brought by the call of God into a familial relationship with one another. Now, this is always to be, always, brethren, our first foundational perspective of relationship with our fellow believers in Christ Jesus. We are family. Now, that may seem like very basic Christian doctrine, and it is, but how easily we forget what is primary, what is foundational. Our brethren are not club members. They're not fellow religious devotees in some general sense. They're not just good friends. They should be. I'm not arguing that they shouldn't be, but they are brethren. You are my brother, my sister, literally in the eyes of God. More so than my genetic connection through the same parent could make you. You are my sister. You are my brother. Far more than some fuzzy social expression recognizing you as a fellow human being. Oh, brother this or sister that. Or we're all brethren. That's not what we're talking about. Not in the eyes of God. We are before God family members, and he expects us to act like we belong together in the family of God. When we begin to lose patience with each other, when we're tempted to give up in loving relationship with one another, brethren, divorce within the church is not an uncommon thing. When we see each other in pain or in need, our first response is to proceed from the perspective, this is my family. 
This is my sister. This is my brother. We wouldn't let one of our children, for example, needlessly suffer or one of our siblings to live without our help, would we? We wouldn't do that. We look out for family. We hate the thought of family members being injured, don't we? It's deeply disturbing when the family is at odds in disagreement, and it should be. That's what Paul is talking about when he begins with the words, I appeal to you, brethren. Consider also Paul's approach. We talked about his example. Consider his approach in terms of appeal. What he teaches us. It teaches us, Paul teaches us, to follow his example when we step out with that very first step in dealing with disruption and disrupted relationship with our brethren. You begin with appeal, not demand. You begin with appeal. No high-handed, arrogant correction. You begin with a reasonable and appealing call. You, 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 uh, you plead with your brethren when you're in, in opposition. You recognize that there's a relationship here which is worthy of salvaging, not destroying further. Appeal presents itself with humility and gentleness and love. It means you recognize that the cause of the division between you can break you apart if you're not careful. It can be exacerbated. To begin with appeal means that you recognize the value of recovering the relationship with your brother or sister. It means you recognize that the value of that relationship is based on the divine will, the very calling and redemptive purchase of Jesus Christ. That makes that familial relationship of infinite value. Can you find me something of greater value than the blood of Christ? And that purchased your brethren into the same family. To appeal is to set aside demand, even knowing we're in the right, which we always are. Even knowing we're in the right. And instead, to appeal is to make a choice to pursue peaceful negotiation. To always start with appeal when when possible is a choice to honor our familial relationship with our brethren and our Lord Jesus who has made that relationship. And that's another lesson Paul has presented to us immediately by example. He appeals in the name of Jesus Christ. It's for Christ's sake that we maintain a perspective of familial relationship with our brethren. It's for Christ's sake that we value what he's purchased with his own blood. In this case, the very family that we're now part of. To refuse to appeal when relationship is damaged, to refuse that and instead to demand to impatiently rebuke, to reject the relationship is to devalue the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. It's to carelessly dismiss the divine call of God which made us brethren. To proceed in divided relationship with our brethren is to dishonor the cross. Brethren, Paul is right to appeal in the name of Jesus Christ because that's the very reason, the the redemption, the headship of Jesus, that's the very reason that we must pursue felicitous relationship with our brethren. If and when you are tempted, whether through frustration or tiredness or a moment of peak, if you're tempted to throw away the bonds of Christian fellowship, stop for a moment and simply consider What an insult to Christ's work at Calvary that attitude is. That should be a a halt 
a hard stop right there for us, brethren. He will not, Christ will not, he has said, lose a single one whom the Father has given him. But we will. We're okay with losing a few of those. How wrong. What a wicked attitude if that's in our hearts. Some thoughts for us to begin with. Now before we proceed further in our examination of verse 10, this call to set aside any division, before we proceed further, I think it's helpful for us to kind of take a half step back at this point and ask a question of context. Why does Paul find it necessary to begin his letter with an appeal to agree? No divisions to be united. What's the context for this apostolic appeal? Well, reading from verse 10 on, we discover the answers in verse 11 and 12. Let's read that. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brethren. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. The church at Corinth was at this time characterized by what some call a party spirit. The divisions which Paul is requiring they eliminate were based on association as a clique under the name of a particular commonly recognized church leader. Now the four stated cliques are Team Paul, Team Apollos, Team Cephas, or Peter, and Team Christ. Now it's possible that this was a natural worldly perversion which had seeped into the church from a characteristic socio-religious cultural trait of Corinth. It could be that the culture of Corinth had too much influence still within the context of the church. It's also possible that the peculiar origin of Corinth, assembling under the work of many laborers, had left the church in a somewhat disassembled state. We do kind of see that in our study of Titus, that Paul was trying to ask, was, was trying to correct uh, incomplete work. Is, it's possible that's behind this as well. We know, for example, also that Peter periodically struggled with dealing with the freedom of the Gentiles to eat what was unclean to a Jew. That was a, a personal struggle that Peter had. In Acts 10, we discover that Christ had to present a vision three times to Peter to teach him that what he considered unclean as a Jew no longer applied in the context of the New Covenant era, Christ having fulfilled this aspect of the ceremonial law. We know that Peter struggled with the fear of being considered ritually impure or unclean because later we read the following account of Paul in Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Let me read that to you now. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now that's a strong word, brethren. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. James was the the bishop, if you will, of the church of Jerusalem. That should tell us something. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Why am I presenting this to you? I'm presenting it to you because it's very possible that Peter's wavering in this matter had transferred itself to Corinth. 
some holding to separation from unclean foods. Others opposed that view, possibly, and sided with Paul's view on this matter. Perhaps some sided with Peter, thinking they had a greater mascot in Peter, who was their, their estimate uh, really a, a bona fide disciple, who had been trained by Jesus. But Paul was kind of a latecomer, deserving perhaps lesser recognition. Apollos, we know, was a powerful speaker, extremely gifted, a convincing rhetorician. He was what we would call a a dynamic and a charismatic preacher. But for a time, he had only known the gospel through the teaching of the baptism of John the Baptist. He hadn't moved beyond that. His preaching had proceeded powerfully for a time, but imperfectly. In Acts 18.26, we read the following. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, speaking of Apollos. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I think that when we, if we can consider that these, these sort of slight deviances from a pure and accurate gospel, if we can even call Peter's problem slight, if we, but if we look at those and we see that they might have been promulgated in some way at Corinth, then I think we have the basis for the divisions that Chloe's household has reported to Paul. Now, that's, that's admittedly somewhat speculative, but it does align with the New Testament narrative. Now, setting aside that idea, setting aside any possible doctrinal or practical deviation which might have led to the divisions at Corinth, we may simply be looking at the natural fall in human nature still requiring sanctification, still requiring spiritual maturity. We may simply be looking at a common struggle for unity in the body of Christ. Now, if you, if you find it hard, as I'm describing this, to relate to these deviations, these divisions rather, and, and understand their relevancy to us today, let me make a few statements. See if this helps. I'm a Calvinist. I'm an Arminian. I'm a Lutheran. I follow John MacArthur. I follow the teachings of R.C. Sproul. I go to Doug Wilson's church. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Baptist. I'm PCA. I'm OPC. I'm Reformed Baptist. Reformed. I'm Dutch Reformed. We can drill down even further, brethren. I'm Theonomic. I'm Sabbatarian. I'm Amillennial. I'm Dispensational. I'm credo-baptist. I'm pedo-baptist. And on and on and on. Do you get the point I'm making? I think you get my point. We just can't seem to get enough of dividing into cliques. What began in Corinth has grown into a monstrous division of the church. It never ceased. It continued to grow greater and greater division for 2,000 years, brethren. Churches divide into camps of disciples, of specific preachers and theologians. We divide into camps of eschatological perspective. We divide into camps of fine, nuanced doctrinal issues. That's tearing up the Reformed Baptist Church right now. Invariably, just as Chloe's household reported, those divisions lead to quarreling, arguing, heated separation, and in the face of such division, Paul says this, I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you. Now, Paul is certainly not arguing 
that there can be no grounds for separation within the context of the church community, ever. Paul will very soon rebuke the church, this very church, with strong words for refusing to enact such a separation against a member of the church for gross immorality. Our study of Titus recently taught us that Paul requires that unnecessarily divisive people themselves, heretical teachers also, be removed from the church fellowship. In his second letter to the Thessalonian church in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul even builds an argument requiring that the church note those who walk disorderly among them, that is, those who maintain a life of public sin while calling themselves Christians, Such are to be identified, and he says avoid it. Separate yourself from them. So there are times when division is absolutely necessary. In Galatians 1, 8 through 9, Paul says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As as we've said before, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So there certainly is a case to be made for a proper, even necessary, brethren, cause for division in the church. But is that what Chloe's household is reporting to Paul has created the divisions of Corinth? It's not. Are these divisions the product of immorality? Are these divisions caused by heretical teachers driving schism? Are these divisions caused by a counterfeit gospel that somehow infected the church and made its way? No. It seems that these divisions which have led to quarreling are rather superficial. They seem to be built on personal preference and persona. Perhaps perhaps some self-made religion is involved in terms of Jewish aversion to unclean uh, unclean foods. Perhaps some Gentiles were flaunting their liberty in this area. Perhaps some nuance of doctrinal teaching is in the mix. Whatever the case... There's clearly a poorly founded and unnecessarily competitive spirit behind the formation of these cliques. Apparently, pride is involved as well. The Corinthians have tried to derive honor to themselves by their clique and to their clique by association with specific men. Now against this, some have said, I follow Christ. But Paul doesn't let this group off the hook either. And we'll see that shortly. Now let's sidebar for a moment and consider the state of Corinth and look for some application. I think the low-hanging fruit of application is, first of all, the warning. Warning to us as a church. We've formed a church, this specific church, Christ Reformed Church, from varied views of the sacrament of baptism, variants in views of church governance, and covenant theology. These doctrines and practices of the church ought not touch on the pure gospel nor on sanctified Christian living. God has graciously preserved the agreement of our church in these matters, which are the far greater issues. If we're not careful, however, we can easily divide into camps of pedoist versus credoist. Our church teaches and practices a single view of baptism, and that's with purpose. Why? So that we don't fracture into two groups. And you, brethren, 
You who have held paedo-baptistic doctrine and practice in the recent past, you've graciously set aside the teaching and the practice of that doctrine in this church for the sake of my conscience and the consciences of your credo-baptist brethren, for the sake of our biblical convictions. You've done that for the sake of agreement. You've agreed that this is a nuance of a view of covenant theology which is not necessary to maintain for the sake of agreement producing church unity. Now I want to commend you for doing that because you've followed Paul's teaching here as we'll soon see. But do you realize, I want to ask this question, do you realize how rare you are? (laughs) How unique is your decision to concede your preferred covenantal view for the sake of church unity? Do you know how impossible that would be in another church? I hope many of you do. I think many of you do. God has given us something rare in this church in terms of unity. Now we ought to be watchful to preserve this agreement. On the credo-baptist side, we have even been required to agree that you have a conscience in this matter, that you're operating to hold to your belief on a scriptural argument. It's one that I disagree with, also on scriptural grounds. But I accept that you have an argument from scripture which holds your conviction. I'll not violate your conscience in this matter, nor will I diminish your conviction with snarky comments and arrogant arguments. Our agreement as a church is too important to me. Now this means that I have to watch out for you. Since we are a Reformed Baptist church and not a Presbyterian church, I'm going to have to be on my toes. On more than one occasion, for example, I've recently heard this passing comment. Not in this church. You're off the hook. But I've heard this comment. Some of these Reformed Baptist churches don't have the word Baptist in their name. It's like they're ashamed of being Baptists. I've heard that recently. I smirked. Didn't say anything. They had no idea the name of our church. Brethren, I'm not ashamed to be a Baptist, or more specifically, a credo-Baptist. But I hardly need to wave the credo-Baptist flag as a foundation for church unity. Is our church first a Baptist church, or first the church of Jesus Christ? Christ Reformed Church is a sufficient name for me. I specifically leaned away from proposing a name with Baptist in it. Johnny will tell you I did this because I believed at that time and I still believe that Paul has warned against such avenues into unnecessary division. I can tell you I am not ashamed of the word Baptist and I'm not ashamed that that's not part of our church's name. Not because I'm not credo-baptistic in my covenantal view, but because I'm convinced it's an unnecessary declaration of division of the church of Christ. Now why do it? Why do it? Well, some might argue, don't you want Baptists to know where to come when they move into the area? Of course I do. But if, but if what's drawing them is simply declared credoism, then they have their head in the sand. Brethren, the world around us doesn't care about believer's baptism versus infant baptism. It doesn't care. The world, the flesh, and the devil is opposed to Christ, not the word Baptist or the word Presbyterian. Give me a break. So what do we do? We work toward agreement. Now let's talk about that in greater detail. Having examined the problem at Corinth, let's return to Paul's appeal. And now I want to ask this question. 
what does Paul teach us is the remedy for division in the church? Let's return to verse 10. I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul begins with a requirement. We must agree. This is a requirement. The church must agree. We have to challenge division head on by first recognizing that we are required with, through an apostle, with the authority of Jesus Christ, as if Christ himself were speaking to us, we are required to agree. Those in the church who refuse to work toward agreement when potential division arises, they're in sin and they're operating contrary to Christ. When Paul deals with an argument in the church at Philippi involving two church members, you might even remember their names, he tells the church the following in Philippians 4, 2 and 3. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. It's the same language, isn't it? I entreat to agree. I appeal, agree. It's the same language. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Simply put, since we are brethren in Jesus Christ, since we've been called by God into this fellowship of Jesus Christ, since our names are written collectively in the book of life, we must come together in agreement. Whenever there's a division, someone is refusing to pursue agreement or they're dragging their feet or they're not moving if we remain in that state of disagreement. Someone or multiple someones are persisting in holding out in their position against agreement when division is maintained. Now note that Paul has not called for compromise. He's not required a compromise of morals, compromise of scripture, compromise of the gospel, compromise of the sound doctrine of Christ and the apostles, he's required agreement. In other words, come together in unity, holding to those things, honoring those things, supporting the gospel, supporting and honoring the teaching of Christ and the apostles, supporting the integrity of the church and her holy walk. Come together on those things in agreement. Work to find a solution which preserves those things. But agree, you must. Once one or more parties entrench and refuse to work toward agreement, sin has appeared and now we're dealing with unnecessary division and we learn from Paul's letter to Titus what that means. Pursue unnecessarily useless quarreling and arguing. Do that. And the church must soon certify the division you are producing by removing you. We're looking at Paul's remedy to division. How do we fix unnecessary division in the church? Side note, I'm aware of a church that did this with their pastor. They removed their pastor for unnecessary division. And the church remained with integrity. How about that? Second answer, we're, we're asking, what's Paul's remedy? Have the same mind. Have the same mind. The command is to think the same way. We're not allowed to simply declare, well, I just think differently than you, so we can't come to agreement. I think differently. Nope. Sorry, can't do that. 
We have to think the same things the same way. Now, if that sounds impossible, remember the context. It's not art. It's not politics. It's not history. It's not military tactics. It's not diet and exercise. We're talking about the teaching and the practice of the church. We have to to think the same in that context. Our minds are to be in agreement in that context. Now, how can Paul command that to a church full of people of such varied backgrounds, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free men and women, think the same thing? Well, Paul can and does require that we think the same in terms of the teaching and the practice of the church. Why? Because the teaching and the practice of the church has been written down for us in the same scriptures and because the same Holy Spirit indwells us, helping us in a united understanding of the teaching and the practice of the church revealed in scripture. Brethren, when Paul says that we're to be united in the same mind, that is first and foremost a call to submit to the authority of Scripture. It's a call to sola scriptura. Paul can command the same mind to be in us, to unite us, because Christ and the apostles have taught us what to think about the doctrine and the practice of the church. It's not a mystery. How do we apply this? Well, the application is that we are required to be students of the word together. We're to do that together. The word of God has to, first of all, be supreme in authority at Christ Reformed Church. Now, we may have all kinds of personal preferences in church practice, fine, speculative nuances of doctrine, but when the weight of Scripture falls on precept and principle, we conform and we unite. This means that we have to give up what we want to think time and time again. This means that we have to be willing to acknowledge that like Apollos, from time to time, our brethren need to pull us aside and we need to receive a more accurate view of Scripture from them. It means that if we hold on to our way of thinking and we hold out against the power of Scripture and the indwelling Holy Spirit to conform our thinking to Scripture, if we do that, if we hold out, we're actually working against the unity of the church. For example, such a holdout is at the heart of the division between those who accept the doctrine of sovereign election and those who reject it. To my mind, And in my experience, those who reject the doctrine of predestination and election, in their minds, this simply cannot be. They start with that. This simply cannot be. That's just not fair to my mind. Or not possible. The clear teaching of Scripture doesn't seem at times to be able to trump this refusal to think through and agree with brethren who hold to the doctrine of predestination. So what happens? We divide into camps. And ironically, they're named after two men. I'm Team Calvin. I'm Team Arminius. There we are. Brethren, let's take the warning. We have to agree. And that agreement is a call to submission to the supremacy of the Word of God. If we deny the Word of God at any level, we are actively destroying the unity of Christ's Reformed Church. Do you want our church to be strongly united? Then do your part to think the same as I, and I must do my part to think the same as you. Ultimately, Scripture and only Scripture must define our faith. 
the teaching and the practice of the church. Anything else, anything else, it ranges from suspect to dangerous, brethren. Tradition, preference, historical interpretation, worldly philosophy, emotional attachments. Brethren, it could go on. Watch out for these things, among many others, defining the way you think about the church, defining the interpretation of Scripture, defining the teaching and the practice of the church. These are the harbingers of destruction of the unity of the church. Now moving forward in Paul's command, in our examination of Paul's command, to have no divisions in the church. As we look at this remedy, we arrive at the command to exercise the same judgment. Now what does it mean to exercise the same judgment? Now your translation of this word rendered judgment in my ESV may be alternately translated purpose. Now, neither word is ideal. I can tell you that. By looking at the word in Greek, neither word is is particularly helpful. But when you put judgment and purpose together, and you understand them together the right way, you can begin to understand what Paul is requiring of us. Paul is telling us to reason together what our purpose ought to be. In other words, Paul is saying, exercise reasonable judgment, which brings you together to the right conclusion. That's our job when there's divisions. Oh, brethren, this is what didn't happen in many churches during the COVID hysteria. This is it. Churches divided, they separated, they closed their doors, they injured and mauled one another simply because the brethren wouldn't exercise reasonable judgment to come together on a right conclusion. We simply wouldn't exercise good judgment to come to the right end goal or purpose. That's sinful neglect. There's no other way to approach that. That is sinful neglect, at least. Now, I experienced this. Many of you experienced this. You see, agreement doesn't just happen by fiat. It doesn't happen by declaration. It doesn't just happen when one party has the stronger personality. Agreement doesn't get produced when one side simply caves. It doesn't happen just because we may be in the right and have the right and holy side of the argument. Remember that at Corinth, some were in Team Christ. They said, I follow Christ. But Paul doesn't let this group off the hook either. Instantly, Paul says in verse 11, is Christ divided? In other words, if you really are on Christ's side and following Christ and called by Christ, Why are you in this state of division with your brethren? Why are you maintaining that? Why are you part of creating that division? Is that like Christ whom you claim to follow? If you really were following Christ, wouldn't you be following the commands of his apostle who's appealed to you that there be no divisions in the church? If you really were on team Christ, as you claim, wouldn't you be pursuing agreement and unity and common thinking and judgment? Wouldn't you be working toward a common goal? Agreement produces unity. And to come to agreement, we have to work in common to scripturally think and reason together to come to an agreeable outcome which accords with sound scriptural thinking. There it is. Why do we live in a time when Christianity is so broken into ever-weakening denominations? 
It's because we've refused to do what Paul appeals to us to do in 1 Corinthians 1.10. Again, we've arrived at the same conclusion regarding the supremacy of Scripture. Our common goal has to be alignment with scriptural teaching. That is, alignment with Christ, his revelation of himself. The final purpose of disagreeing Christians must be to reach a common goal of conformity to scriptural teaching and practice. That's key, brethren. I'm going to repeat that. The final purpose of disagreeing Christians must be to reach a common goal of conformity to scriptural teaching and practice. If we did that and did it well, the church of our era wouldn't presently be so divided. Divide brethren absurdly, it's divided even among churches who claim sola scriptura. That makes no sense. That makes no sense at all. So as we consider all these things, what's the final thought that I would try to leave with us as we close? What's the final word? Let me see if I can position this thought by reading verse 17 to you and then asking a question. Verse 17. In verse 17, Paul defends his approach to the nurturing of the church at Corinth. Nurturing which was defined by the sole preaching of the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't build his ministry on baptizing people in the name of Paul. That is, in making converts to Paul and disciples of Paul. Instead, in verse 17, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now let me ask a question. Does it seem to you, as it seems to me, that we are living in a time that does not lack eloquent wisdom, that is, eloquent words of apparent wisdom in the church? But in terms of the influence of the church, the cross of Christ seems to be emptied of its power. I can't be the only one that senses that, that experiences that. Are we living in a time when the church is generally so weak and powerless, so empty of influence in Oregon, for example, that we might even say the cross of Christ has been emptied of its power? Perhaps it would be better to ask the question this way. Let me change that a little bit. Has the church been emptied of the power of the cross of Christ? Maybe that's the better question, the appropriate question. There it is. I think Paul has helped us discover at least in part why. In large part, the church has been emptied of the power of the cross of Christ because we've simply spent too much time dividing and arguing over whose team we're on. We've spent too much time dividing over issues which Scripture has plainly elucidated. We've refused to come together on clear matters of plainly taught gospel light, doctrinal truth, church life, things that are spelled out clearly in Scripture the church has departed from. And we're still spending too much time dividing over relatively insignificant nuances of thought and fine speculations, allowing them to break agreement. Silly deviations produced by poor judgment. Brethren, this is the sin of the Protestant Reformed Church today. And while we've done that, much of the power of the cross of Jesus Christ has been emptied out of the Reformed Church. Why? Because for starters, we've been too busy splitting up over pandemics and politics 
and nuances of covenant theology and useless arguments primarily produced in seminaries. We've been too busy refusing to hear our brethren and think alike scripturally and judge alike scripturally. We've been too enamored of our own autonomy, our own intelligence, our own dubious insight. Brethren, even in the Reformed faith, our churches have been too careless with sola scriptura. And we wonder, we wonder then, why are we so fractured and weak in terms of impact in our culture and in the lives of our fellow Christian brethren? Well, just look how easily the COVID hysteria tore up the Protestant Reformed Church. Now, not all, surely, but many, perhaps the majority in one way or another. And at the top of the list of reasons why, it was because we could not come to agreement united in obedience to Christ. We couldn't come to agreement because we wouldn't think alike and judge alike. There was a refusal. And we wouldn't think alike, we wouldn't judge alike, because the authority and sufficiency of Scripture took second place to other things. Things like emotion, things like personal worldview, things like liberal influence, things like cultural pressure, these things trumped Scripture and we collapsed. We broke apart. Brethren, it ought not be so. I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. God help us all here at Christ Reformed Church to fervently desire and obediently pursue the unity of the church under the supremacy of Scripture. God help us to hold to the common purpose of being filled with the power of the cross of Christ. Amen.